Welcome to the Mom Docs Podcast. We are three chiropractors on a mission to empower moms and dads to intentionally choose health for their kids and families, to provide core principles to raise their families holistically, and to help parents take an active role in their family's health. Our goal is to provide families a philosophical approach to healthcare that steps away from the conventional and supports true health. Welcome back. Today we are covering postpartum decisions to consider. I think that often there's such a focus on pregnancy and labor and delivery that often we fail to adequately think through all the decisions that come once the baby is earthside. And I know that was, you know, definitely the case with me. It was like, you're just so excited to be pregnant. You're reading everything about what's happening inside you. Um, and then you start really focusing your all of your attention on labor and delivery. And I did some things to prepare for postpartum and breastfeeding, but there really is so much that isn't talked about. And so the goal of this episode is to bring light, some topics for you to think about, things to discuss with your friends and your spouse, and things that we really think you should be considering ahead of time for you and your baby. So topics we're going to cover today uh, are postpartum rest guidelines or suggestions. We'll talk about placenta encapsulation, um, some philosophies behind that. We'll talk about the importance of delayed bathing, soaps, lotions, shampoos for a baby, what you really need for a newborn, circumcision, breastfeeding, and probably a few other things that are just going to come up as the three of us get together and start talking babies. So let's start off with postpartum rest days. So like this is the immediate, we just had the baby. What are some guidelines and suggestions on rest? I'll start for me specifically. I uh, had a bit of tearing with uh, my two, two of both of my babies that I had at home. And so my midwife suggestion was stay in bed and use your downstairs guest room. So you're on the main floor, really easy to get to the kitchen and really easy to get down the hallway to a bathroom and you don't have to go upstairs. And her suggestion was you need one week in bed or around bed for every baby. So baby number two, it's an extra week in bed. Baby number three, it's two weeks in bed. Really to just honor that your body is really needs time to go through healing and repair and recovery. And I'll tell you for me, um, my, that lower bedroom, I have like warm, fuzzy feelings when I go into it in our home, because it's like my postpartum sanctuary, because Gwen, when I had her, I just, that was my little hideout. And the 18 month old was upstairs and dad had to do the nights with him. And I just got to sit in that little heavenly oasis and hold my newborn and be all alone. And it was just amazing. So that room is my little sanctuary, but it was really nice to not have to go up and downstairs, especially when you're so sore and you're bleeding. Um, it's a really big benefit. So I'd love to hear from you guys. What are some of your postpartum suggestions and guidelines for those days, days immediately following uh, labor? I, I feel like I didn't really plan for postpartum for my first three kids, which is, it sounds so irresponsible. It was just kind of like, well, I'll just wing it. I'll be fine. By number three. Right. <laughs> you started planning on number four. I see how this works. Yes. Right. And with our fourth, I was like, okay, I like, I, I have to like do something to make sure that I'm caring for myself because I, I would literally like after Xavier was born, so my third I would be up and like taking my kids to school the next day. And I didn't, that was so irresponsible. <laughs> like oh I just goodness. felt, but I felt fine, you know, and I feel like a lot of women are just kind of like, I'm fine. 
but I feel like I, you know, it just prolongs that recovery so much. And then with our fourth, I really just hunkered down and did like what you recommended, like one week per kid. Um, and it, it made a huge difference in my recovery. Um, now I started traveling like a lot after that, you know, that four month mark. And I feel like that kind of took a toll. So I feel like it's really kind of a journey for the first year. Wouldn't you agree? Like there's a lot of, I think a lot of women that jump right back into the workplace or they, you know, jump right back into, to working out like right after that six to eight week mark. And really our bodies take about 12 months to really kind of recalibrate and get back to where we were, or at least close to where we were um, before we had the baby. I don't know how you guys feel about that. Yeah, you feel okay. So you do something and then you pay the price for it several weeks later. And I dealt with that with just even having a diastasis. So I was fine and healed and recovered and back to working out. And it turns out I wasn't really healed and recovered and wound up with pelvic floor issues and, it, and a more significant diastasis than was really necessary because I didn't honor that it's not just a, okay, I feel better and I'm done bleeding recovery timeline. It's really a 12 month recovery. It is. And for me, um, something that I think about often too, is especially if you're having a home birth compared to being in the hospital, like when you think about if you have your baby in the hospital, you're there for a couple of days typically. And if you're in the hospital, you're not getting out of that bed. Like someone, every time your baby needs a feed, like someone's bringing that baby to you. So it's amazing when you're at home because you can be in your own bed, in your own home, but it makes it a little bit harder to um, resist that of, Hey, I could just go to the kitchen and grab this myself. So I think something that we learned the second baby is, um, you know, planning that out, like you're saying, so my husband was there right away, you know, again, in bed for a week and then, um, having someone, you know, if you're able to have someone there to help cook, especially if you have other children to, you know, have like a meal plan laid out, someone that's going to help you to make sure that you can honor that time. Cause same thing, like, especially after first baby, I was that way. And I tore the first time and, um, you know, it's so important to let your body heal when you choose to let it heal naturally. Um, it's definitely like in bed for a week around your bed for a, uh, the second week. And then my midwife recommended, and then it's like in your home for the third week, you know, so having someone on hand, um, to help you is, is super important with that too. Another good resource is The Fourth Trimester by Kimberly Ann Johnson. Um, it's a really good read if you're looking for other resources and ideas, you know, in that area also. So let's talk mom's nutritional needs postpartum. And that was also a big one for me in those immediate days that I like to have close proximity to the kitchen, especially in the middle of the night nursing sessions, just to be able to get up and easily access water and easily access snacks and nursing cookies that friends bring over. Don't always recommend eating at two in the morning, but sometimes postpartum, that's just what you do. So let's talk through what are the nutritional needs, mom needs, postpartum, and really making sure that we're covering all of our bases, especially in those days when we're recovering and when our milk is starting to come in and we're needing to think about how do we replenish our bodies, but also make sure that we're providing adequate fuel and nutrients for our babies. So a couple of things to consider are iron-rich foods. There's a lot of blood loss during labor for some people, and especially postpartum, once you deliver your, your placenta. That was a shocker for me. Like, I knew that I needed to have, like, pads and diapers on hand, but I really didn't think through exactly what that meant. 
And that there is a lot of blood loss in those following weeks postpartum. So really making sure that you're replenishing hemoglobin levels and iron levels with iron-rich foods. So dark leafy greens, red meats, just a reminder that you'll get better iron absorption when you take them with a vitamin C source or vitamin C supplementation, but really focusing on replenishing iron. Fatty acids is another big one to make sure that you're really diligent on getting in postpartum. I would, I would highly recommend taking this in supplement form. I just think it's too hard to get enough nutritionally. So making sure that you're getting a focus on omega-3 fatty acids, specifically DHA through the form of fish oil capsules. You can do it with flax oil as well. Um, it's important to remember breast milk is composed of tons of saturated fats. So we need to give it the building blocks for that production. It's also really good for your mental health with anxiety, postpartum depression also helps omega-3 fatty acids are good for healing and repair. So that's another big one. Would you, would you recommend people increase their intake of that if they're already taking one? Like I know a lot of people will take that prenatally, but do you do you typically recommend increasing that postpartum? Yes and no. It depends how much you're taking. The only risk, in okay. my opinion, of taking too much fish oil or too many omega fatty acids is that it can thin your blood. But right. I really only ever worry about that with patients that are already on blood thinners. That's really the only time that I feel like you're even close to having a risk with having too much of it. So okay. I, th- I think if you're taking an adequate amount, doing that, but then also focusing your nutrition on getting even more in. So more nuts, more seeds, more avocados, more olive oils, more olives. If you're in the Gianforte household, I know that's easy to get your olives in. <laughs> we love olives. Um, another big thing is water. I think that's something that's easy to overlook. Um, like you need a lot of water, especially if you want to have like a strong milk supply. So I know something that I did, like just having an easy, accessible water bottle, you know, one with a handle, one with a straw, like you have a newborn baby in your arms. That was something that I did. I never would, I would always sit down, whenever I would sit down to nurse like that a full water bottle was always next to me. And that was an easy time to remind myself to stay hydrated and really replenish what's coming out of your body, like putting things back in to make sure that your, your milk supply stays up. And I think also, I mean, when you think about that your body is doing, you just had a baby and now you're, you're feeding that baby nutritionally, staying on your prenatal, you know, for six, 12 months um, after you have the baby. And I actually just two weeks ago, um, so it's, it's fresh in my mind. I had a, a mom who had a baby and she started dealing with like, you know, some postpartum like mood stuff and just lack of energy. And of course you're up a lot at night and whatnot, but we just had her start taking like the essentials that we're talking about, you know, like the omegas, um, vitamin D, vitamin C, magnesium, uh, like a B complex, um, and started, you know, within a week, she noticed, you know, major, major changes just by making sure we're replenishing the nutrients, you know, so your body can, um, you know, do exactly what it needs to do. Yeah. D, vitamin D and B vitamins are also really important for mom's health and baby's health. Vitamin D, obviously you can get naturally by just getting outside, but same thing. I think it's, it's a good time to focus on supplementation or utilize supplementation because it's just, your body has excess needs in those postpartum days. So let's talk about placenta. This is always an interesting topic to talk about with people who have never considered it before, but let's talk through, do you keep it? Do you discard it? I would love to hear from both of you. I'll put my cards on the table. 
I kept my placenta with all my kids. I encapsulated it for Levi, took it with Levi, made a big difference. I encapsulated it with Gwen. She had some baby acne issues. And so I thought there was maybe some extra hormones. So I stopped it and really didn't feel like I needed it with her. So I just stored it in my deep freezer. Same thing with Roman, except Roman, I also made some into, I had my midwife make some into a tincture because I heard it lasts longer and you can take hormonally down the road when you go through menopause. So I'm like, well, it's not going to hurt to try it. So I do have like, you know, 10 little vials of placenta tincture (laughs) in my deep freezer right now that I plan to pull out in about 40 or in, you know, 20 years when uh, menopause hits. So let's hear from the lady. I'm so glad that you had a baby a good year ahead of me, because this was something that I kind of blindsided me even, you know, like, wait, what? Like, we're going to encapsulate this and, and take this. And, um, you know, it, it worked wonders for me. I'd love to hear like some of the things that you guys noticed if you took it. And I was kind of from the, the perspective of, you know, after hearing other friends doing it and the benefits that it brought to them, I was like, well, there, it doesn't hurt anything, right? Like I have this, let's get it encapsulated. doesn't mean I have to take it, but it's there and it's an option. And for me, uh, with our first, you know, long labor body went through a lot. Um, I was super exhausted and tired. And when I would wake up in the morning, I would take two of those placenta pills. Like it was, it was unbelievable how energy boosting it was like, that was the biggest difference that I noticed. Like there's a lot of different, um, you know, it's, it's technically like a traditional Chinese medicine. Um, when you take it, it, um, has been shown to increase your production of oxytocin, which helps, um, you know, shrink your, your uterus postpartum. It also helps to decrease your stress hormones. It helps to restore your iron, iron levels after, you know, blood loss, um, you know, during and after birth, it also has been shown, you know, to help increase your milk supply. So what are some of the things that you guys have noticed? Um, if you, if you took yours also. Well, I, I can speak to this because with Elle, she's, she's our first and I didn't do anything with the placenta. In fact, I like, I didn't even know anything at that point about it. And, uh, fast forward to our second and we encapsulated and, uh, I started taking it right away. And I noticed a huge difference in just like my mood, um, because those first, few months after you have a baby, like you probably notice like that kind of roller coaster mood swings, um, and even postpartum depression can sink in. And I did notice with our second taking those, I didn't have hardly any of that roller coaster issue, um, in terms of mood. And so I'm, I'm looking at, okay, well, what did I do differently? And the only thing that was different was really just the placenta encapsulation and taking that consistently. I will say that with our third, I encapsulated the placenta and I noticed, um, as I increased my dosage of that over like a course of a couple weeks, my milk supply started to go down, even though I wasn't really changing anything else. So I, I, you know, laid off of it for a little bit and I noticed my supply came back up. So again, like, I think it is kind of, you just have to listen to your body with each baby and see, you know, how it's affecting you. Um, but for the most part, it's, it worked wonders for me. And what a great option when you think about it, you know, if you really end up having that, that lull and like, you know, feeling postpartum depression, what a great natural option to be able to utilize compared to, you know, going down the route of of medications and things like that. If it, if it got severe, especially when you are nursing, you know, I think that's so important. I think I agree with you fully, Natalie. There's no reason not to keep it and encapsulate it 
and store it away. And if you don't need it, great. If you take it and it doesn't work well for you, just get rid of it. But once you throw away that placenta after the baby's born, there's no getting it back. And then you may have to end up relying on things that you wouldn't necessarily want to. So I think there's no disadvantage to keeping it and capsuling it besides maybe two to $300. And it's, it's very easy. The stuff is very simple to do, like a simple Facebook post or search to your area and say, I'm looking to have my placenta encapsulated. Who knows someone? That's what I'm saying for listeners that are newer. Um, we, I, I don't think any of us did this ourselves, right? Like there are, you know, no. you're, there's people that will do this for you. Um, mm-hmm. so like you're saying, like, look into that. Okay. So let's talk about something that I was very, had no idea about. And as I've shared before, our first, we did end up transferring. We planned a home birth. We did end up transferring and having him in the hospital. I was exhausted. And about nine o'clock, he was born at two o'clock in the afternoon, about nine o'clock that night, suddenly a nurse comes in and I like can halfway open my eyes. And I just see like my baby naked over the, like the bathroom sink, having his hair washed and his body washed. And I'm thinking like, what soap are they using? What's going on? Like I had no plan for this. We weren't supposed to be at the hospital. What is she putting on him? What are they doing? Why are they bathing my baby? And I really didn't have any consideration with it. And in studying what's the importance of keeping that vernix and keeping all of the things that that baby is born with on your child for at least a day or two after birth is really a great idea. So I'd love your guys' perspectives. And I know Natalie or, or one of you threw in some research on this concept of delayed bathing, delaying that first bath. I think for some, everybody right away, you know, you have this new baby and we picture it being this amazing, you know, like clean, I think the cleanliness, right? Like we want to give that baby, especially if you're in the hospital, they want to, you know, clean it up and make it all cute and pretty. So you have your sweet new baby and it's easy to overlook like, wait, that vernix, you know, that is, it's there for a reason. And it's been shown, you know, to delay the newborn's bath, honestly, as long as you can, like with our third, it was like a good five or six days, you know, to just let, let them be, let their skin be. So the vernix, it actually is a protective layer while they're in the womb that protects their skin since they are, um, you know, immersed in, in water and fluids. And it also acts as a, a natural moisturizer. So it protects their skin. It has antibacterial properties to it. So the last thing we want to do, especially with like a harsh soap or something right away is to wash that off. And, um, one study actually showed that 166% increase in hospital, um, breastfeeding success after implementing a 12 hour delay in the baby's first bath, which really isn't even that long, you know, so it helps with, um, the baby and, and, you know, being skin on skin. That's what you want right away. And even your newborn smell that you smell. That was one of my favorite things actually is like thinking back, like smelling your baby. And that actually helps to stimulate your hormones that will increase your milk supply and help your milk come in faster. Um, So there's so many benefits to um, just letting your baby be. And when you think about this, like think about just, again, what always comes to my mind is natural is best. The most natural that we can do things there's, there's things happening that we aren't even aware of, you know, like there's this protective layer around your baby that as humans, we just, you know, naturally think, well, the baby should be clean. So let's wash that off yet. Um, just letting things be in nature is, is so powerful. I think that's something to really consider when it comes to the lotions and shampoos and soaps that we consider having on hand and using on our children. I'll tell you for my kids call this gross or not. I don't think I have, you know, the stinky kids, 
but we use, we use no soap in our house. Like our, our kids are really never bathed with soap. They get a bath or shower every night and 99.9% of time it is just water. If we use any soap, it's Dr. Bronner's unscented soap. We don't use really shampoo or conditioner. I guess I, luckily I only have one girl. So, um, but really <laughs> considering that Johnson Johnson baby shampoo, or when I get this clean newborn out of a bath, do I really need to put lotion on it? Like, and that was something that I had never considered because I, mm-hmm. when I grew up babysitting or with my nieces and with my nephews that were, my sister had a baby, you know, years before I was even in this world, you know, I would babysit him and I would put on the lotions afterwards because that's what you do to keep them hydrated and moisturized versus like, well, no, if we're not dehydrating their skin through harsh chemical laden shampoos and, and things, then they, we don't need the lotion to replenish it. Like normally we should have hydrated skin. So I think really just considering that is important. Yeah. And I'll jump on that too, because I think, you know, when we're going to stock our nursery, when we're preparing for baby and we um, bring in like the diaper rash creams and all these things that are a lot of women use preventatively, um, you know, a lot of times babies will develop, you know, whatever, like skin issues. And it's not something that we have to put something topical on. Like a lot of times it's their, you know, it's a hormonal thing or, you know, their bodies are populating their digestive tract with, you know, with all the healthy bacteria and they just need to go through that. Um, but a lot of times I feel like we go and we start loading the skin up with things that, um, you know, we're not addressing the cause first and we're really not honoring that the body is really working to develop, you know, that healthy bacterial layer on the skin and putting, you know, I think mild soap is fine. Um, but when we start doing, like you said, those harsh chemicals, like it can really impact, Um, the strains of bacteria that are trying to populate on the skin that are going to be protective. Um, So just pay attention to that. I think, you know, a lot of women maybe even don't even realize that diaper cream is, can actually be harmful to that process um, and lotions. Best thing that we ever did for diaper rash, which truthfully, when you live a fairly clean lifestyle and you follow these practices with your child, I can count on one hand, the number of diaper rashes that we've had. And it's always been related to teething. It's always like, oh, they're cranky and they have a a little bit, they feel a little warm. They might have a fever and there's a diaper rash, must have a tooth about to pop through. Best thing that we've ever done with it is breast milk. So we just squirt a little bit of breast milk on it, let it dry out, put the diaper back on, and then just let nature run its course on it. I really, I really strongly agree with you, Erin, on not putting things on when we see rashes, when we, I, and I've dealt with this with my youngest, Roman, he's, we've struggled with skin sensitivities and uh, what the medical world would call eczema with him. And the one thing I feel that we always did right with it is we never put anything on it. We never lotioned it. We never creamed it. We never steroided it. And he's coming through it naturally. And now the more I'm reflecting back and really researching it, realizing what a great decision that that was to just allow the body to get out whatever it needed to get out and recognize the skin is their largest detox organ. And it's just pushing things out. So this will be a quick hitter, but I want to hear what you guys both have to say about what we really need for a newborn. And I think that only... 
second or third time moms can fully appreciate this one. And all the first time moms are going to totally ignore us. You will not listen to this advice because you're just too excited and you don't have enough to do in chasing other children. So you just busy yourself with getting a bazillion things for your newborns. But what would be your guys' advice on what you really need for a newborn? I mean, you legitimately, first you need you, right? You need you and your boobs, um, a community around you, uh, and then diapers, you know, definitely need some diapers and some wipes. Um, you know, we chose to, you know, there's, there's different options there too, you know, going more natural. I think, did you do cloth diapers, Dr. I did. Well, okay. So I did with my first. Oh my goodness. I did it with my third and it was like, oh, I feel so empowered to be doing this. And it was actually fine. Like, uh, it wasn't the daunting experience that I thought it was going to be. Uh, but by the end of like, I think nine months, especially when he started doing solids and like, it just kind of kind got really gross. <laughs> I know a lot of moms that are like, so I have this like amazing supply of cloth diapers going into four, baby number four. And I just remember like not, not, not wanting to deal with it anymore. Um, but I will say that he never had any diaper rash with using those cloth diapers. So for whatever reason, like, I don't know if it's attributable to that or anything else. Um, but I will say that my girls did periodically get some diaper rashes and I use, you know, like the natural disposable diapers, but inevitably there's stuff in there, um, that's going to get on their skin. And again, like we can find, you know, super clean ones. You pay a little bit more money for that. Uh, but I really, with him, I really just wanted to go into it like, making his own baby wipes. You know, I don't know what I would just like was on a kick. I was like, I'm going to do this. And it was, it was a little bit more of a challenge. Like if we ever, if I got behind in the laundry, it's like, Oh my gosh, like Ryan, you need to stop at the store and get disposable diapers. Cause if you don't stay on top of it, you know, you're in trouble. You're but an yeah. overachiever. <laughs> I was, I, I, I wisened up. Class diapers always fell into a very small list of things that I know I should do. And it does very much align with what I believe in, but I'm just, but I'm just not going to. And I did the same for baby one. I bought all the class diaper stuff. And as soon as he was born, it was like, what patient needs these that I can donate them to? Because this is not happening. Okay. So this is the next topic I want to go into we had lots of requests for this when we posted and said, what's a topic that you would love for us to, to talk about? And I feel we could probably devote multiple episodes to it, but we're going to talk briefly on it and give you some of our perspectives on it. But it's the um, idea of circumcision. First thing is I want to share with you a YouTube link that I feel like it's a 19-minute video and I felt, well, it really is insightful on some of the historical references of circumcision. And it's coming from a medical doctor's perspective. And his end of the day statement is that this is a ritualistic, um, historical, it has ritualistic and symbolic reasons to do it, but there is no, no medical reason to be circumcising. And the fact that the AAP came out in 2012 and said, we recommend it formally, which then allowed insurance to be able to pay for it. Uh, it was really a disservice. So this idea of circumcision, so I'll tell you the name of it. It's, um, if you just go on YouTube and type in Dr. Paul Helft, H-E-L-F-T, the McLean, M-A-C-L-E-A-N, the McLean Conference. 
Dr. Paul Helft. If you look up circumcision on YouTube and just look up risks of circumcision, you'll probably easily find it. But truly, from his perspective, it is a symbolic, ritualistic, it has symbolic and ritualistic historical context dating back to 2400 BC. There's super important cultural significance of transition in life, purification, refinement, uh, uh, religious symbolism, um, inclusion in tribes. So there's, a, it, it has happened for thousands of years and some cultures really are deeply ingrained in it. But medically, the U.S. has tried to within our medical system since the 1970s, really, they've been trying to find more and more reasons to medically justify it looking at things from reduced risk of urinary tract infections, reduced risk of STDs, re reduction of masturbation. That was a huge thing that came out in the 1860s, masturbation and bedwetting. They found that it was rare among the Jewish, among Jewish children. So, and in the Jewish religion, circumcision is part of that religion. So then they assumed that the reduced masturbation and bedwetting was, bedwetting was because the child was circumcised and use that as a medical justification for recommending circumcision. So really when they look at, you know, what is the absolute risk of a UTI? What is the absolute risk of an STD? They found some, um, some, re some reduction risk, but really when you look at the, the numbers, a hundred boys would have to be circumcised to prevent one urinary tract infection. Which, when you look at, okay, what is the damage that we're doing to 100 or the risks that we're putting 100 boys through to statistically be able to reduce the risk of one urinary tract infection, which probably would have a just fine outcome and is not that big of a deal anyway. When it comes to STDs, the number is closer to 3,000. So to prevent one sexually transmitted disease, transmitted disease, close to 3,000 children would have to be circumcised. When you really penile or sorry, penile cancer is another one. I mean, it just really what they found medically is that that it's, there's not much behind it. It's been shown to be maybe a hygienic procedure. Everything just falls short. And really, when you look at the benefits, you can't medically justify it. I also think when you look at the risks, the risks are fairly minimal as well, according to the medical research. But I think when you're looking at a decision of, are we going to make a permanent decision that cannot be, you cannot go back on this. So that right. we're making a permanent change to our child and a human being with very little benefits, then we have to consider, okay, what, what's our why behind this? Why are we actually doing this? So, Dr. Nally, what's your perspective? Yeah, I, um, and I, re I remember learning in chiropractic school, like, when a child goes under, you know, circumcision, like, it's cutting off, like, thousands and thousands of, of nerve endings, you know, as well. So, uh, I think, you know, when it comes to circumcision, I think a big decision that a lot of people wrestle with is almost more on the social side of things of, you know, worried about their future son, you know, fitting in socially, et cetera. And I'm excited to hear a story that you have about this. I think when you and Mark, um, decided to make this decision, um, yourselves, but I think, you know, something like that for us, I when we were, you know, obviously, to, you know, force once we had a boy to, to decide this and, and prepare every time you have a child, like, what are you going to do? Um, I really feel like, um, you know, a lot of people, 
are no longer doing it. And I would say that the norm has become, you know, less and less people are circumcising and um, that affects socially then too, you know, just as many people are uncircumcised as are circumcised. And that, that helps, you know, when it comes to that social choice too, of just being aware that, you know, just because you go to the hospital and this is a normal routine, again, it's, it's, um, it's your choice and, you know, thinking ahead and preparing and, and talking through with your spouse, like, what is our plan? rather than just following along with the the typical plan that the medical system has, you know, for your baby. And I, I feel like too, for me, after I, I, I had two girls first, so I didn't have to think about this, but my philosophy about the body and health and healing really evolved from the time I had, you know, my, my girls to the time our son was born and looking at him and, you know, he's this perfect amazing creation. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, why would I want to do anything to change him? Like he it was formed perfectly in my womb and he has everything he needs for optimal health right now. And so it was just like a philosophical question for me. Like, do I need to do anything to make him better? And my answer internally was just that my decision was no, like I, I'm not going to do anything to change his body because I feel like he has everything he needs. And this is, that was just our personal decision. Um, and you know, I know, but I support, I support any mom, you know, they, they, how they come to their decision is totally personal and that's up to them. And again, it is a social thing, like you said, Natalie, uh, so I don't like, there's no condemnation and Sarah, you mentioned, you know, like the risks are, are pretty low anyway, but I think it, it is a philosophical question that parents just have to answer. And that's where, when it comes to husbands, so I was among one of the first, Aaron, I know you had a baby before me and then really there was a little bit of a gap and then I had a baby and then kind of the floodgates open on the rest of our friend group. But we don't, we don't find out gender. We don't do any ultrasounds. And at the time when I had my first, the blood test to find out gender was like three grand. And it was like, well, I'm not doing that. Like, let's just let this be a surprise. And then I realized that that is the absolute best gift you can give yourself is to wait and see what that baby is when it's born. That's a whole other topic. But so we didn't know. We didn't know. So it was something we had to consider. And I, I will not forget the first time sitting down to talk to Mark about it and say, okay, if we, if we have a boy, we're not circumcised. And he was like, what do you mean we're not circumcising? Just completely <laughs> foreign to him. He's like, I like I'm circumcised. The one kid in our high school that wasn't circumcised, like I can tell you all about him. Like <laughs> we, are, we are circumcising our child, and we really had to sit there and say, okay, why are we? Why do you feel that way? Why are we making that decision? And then really understanding that it was a social norm, not what was in the best interest of our child. And I think when it comes to things like circumcision and really the other one that fall, I think really falls in this category of vaccines, just because everyone does it doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And just because it is the socially accepted norm and because the American Academy of Pediatrics gave a recommendation or a suggestion that it should be done for all boys born in the United States doesn't, I want to dive deeper than that before I make that decision. I don't want to make a, a permanent decision for my child because of how he's going to look in a locker room one day. And then I've done some digging and I found things as low as 30% uh, circumcision rate currently in the United States. Some, something set up to a 60% circumcision rate still in the United States, but it's dropping. 
And I personally think that's probably why in 2012 they tried to do another push and suggestion for it. It is dropping. It is becoming more and more normal. And the United States is very rare. Other countries are 5, 10, 20% circumcision rates. The United States is very rare that we do it at such a high rate because truthfully, there are very few to medically speaking, research-wise, almost no benefits to, to doing this procedure. So I think it's something that husbands may initially be resistant to, especially if they are circumcised or don't come from a background of understanding, you know, what normal, you know, what a normal penis looks like before it's, before, that sounds funny to say the word penis, <laughs> but I said it. Anything yeah. goes. Yeah, now I'm turning red. Okay, so that's our two cents on circumcision. Let's talk breastfeeding. All right, I'll jump in. So <laughs> we, I, I think breastfeeding is one of the greatest tools that we have as moms. It's something that's going to benefit your baby. It's going to benefit you. Um, I remember being a first-time mom and thinking my world has so drastically changed now that I am responsible for nursing and feeding this child like every two hours. What? I think that was such a mental shock for me with baby number one, just how reliant this amazing little being was. And it was, that was a big struggle for me. I'll be honest. Like I was not ready for that. The time commitment. I don't, I don't, like I said, like before, I didn't know a lot of people that had babies at my age. And so there were just things that I didn't know that I didn't know. And so I can totally relate to women that see it as a very overwhelming thing, especially if you're struggling to produce milk. Um, you know, if it's painful, you know, if baby seems to be having reactions and I can, I can understand the reason behind, you know, maybe choosing not to, or just throwing up your arms and saying, you know what, this, I just can't do this. This is too, too tough. Um, or stopping early. And so with our first, I toughed it out and I went through like crazy pain, um, you know, as with engorgement and just trying to figure it all out. First time moms, I think do go through that to some extent. Um, but with my subsequent babies, it, I knew what to expect and it became just my routine. Like this is just what we do. And so it was a lot easier down the road, but I tried to nurse my kids for two years straight. Like that was just kind of my goal. And then just hopefully, you know, let them kind of wean themselves. I think there's something really healthy about that. Um, but looking at, you know, scientifically, you know, what are the benefits of this? You look at the nutrition in breast milk, that very first meal that they get of colostrum, you know, really helps to populate their digestive tract with that healthy bacteria. Um, it, it is loaded with antibodies for immune system development. Um, when we look at studies of moms that exclusively breastfeed, so this means, you know, not supplementing with any sort of, um, formula, we see a reduced risk of ear infection, reduced respiratory tract infection, fewer colds and infections, reduced SIDS risk, um, which is huge, you know, reduced skin issues like eczema, dermatitis, and even a reduced risk in childhood leukemia in exclusively breastfed babies. And, you know, looking at the benefits for mom, you know, I, I've noticed this for every single kid. When I was breastfeeding, my uterus was contracting and I'd have those cramps and it was just getting back to that normal size, which is totally healthy. And it wasn't happening outside of breastfeeding. So I know that it was necessary for my body. What are, what have been your journeys with breastfeeding? I will never forget 
my milk came in and I'm up in the middle of the night and my boobs are cantaloupes, like the size of cantaloupes. And I will, and they hurt so bad and I didn't know what to do. And I remember looking at Mark and saying, when is the final shoe going to drop? It's like the end of pregnancy was awful. Like I had this terrible rib pain and I was in so much pain and just like, I just wanted to be done being pregnant. And then labor was felt like, Oh my gosh, that was so much worse. And we wound up at the hospital and then like I'm bleeding and I'm sore and I tore. And like, that's a whole thing that I like was like, Oh, it's another sacrifice. And then like, then my boobs are gigantic and hurting and painful and stabbing pain every time that silly baby would latch. And I just remember thinking, at what point is it going to stop getting worse? Like, at what point will I be, will I just get a break here? And for me, it wound up being about four weeks later where I finally felt stable. Like, okay, the baby is latching. I've learned how to not shoot milk across the room from the other boob while baby <laughs> latches on. I kind of know what to do with my hands right now. I sort of have, like, it doesn't hurt right when he latches any longer. I kind of have this, this down. But I really, I needed the support of someone telling me this is normal or that doesn't seem normal. Here's some things to try. I really needed that community or I, I wouldn't have given up, but I would have been, I could see how people could easily give up because those first few weeks, especially with baby number one, our learning curve, then baby two and three, it was like, oh, this is a cinch. I can do this one handed and upside down, you know, and blindfolded. Like, this is so easy. This is just natural. But it, it took some time to get to that point. For sure. And that's, uh, this, it's, you're so right. It's one of those things that you're like, I remember, you know, your, your nipples being sore and with our third, like my, the cramps that I would get, you know, as soon as he would latch on, I would have to have like a heating pack ready to go on my back before. Um, I mean, thank God, right. When you under, that's what's the power. When you understand like, wait, this is shrinking my stomach. Like this is a good thing. But I mean, totally like your nipples being sore, you know, that those first two weeks, that was something that I was like, nope, nobody told me this. And, um, the, the uterus cramping, like nobody told me, you know, this. And, um, I think my big, thing for people is like, man, just know that there's light at the end of the tunnel. And if you can push through because of everything that you were saying, Aaron, like, you know, breastfeeding your baby is setting that, that child up, you know, so well. And if you are able, you know, to, to push through and, and do that, it's, it's an amazing, amazing thing. And I would argue that when you can exclusively breastfeed after you get for, you know, through those first, you know, three to four weeks, I was like, this is amazing. I can go anywhere with my baby and it doesn't matter what our schedule is because if my baby's hungry, I can sit down and feed them. You know, that's, uh, you know, not having to worry about formula and having to heat up milk or, um, you know, travel with those things. It was like, okay, sweet. We're, we're going on an airplane. All I need is again, back to that, how simplistic I just need. I just, he just needs me you know, which is amazing. And one thing I wanted to mention, um, cause I know some people, especially when in that, those first couple weeks, when, you know, you're trying to get the baby to latch and if, if it's not going well, you know, of course we all know, like getting the baby adjusted can help to improve the latch cranial sacral, um, you know, can also help to improve the latch. So yes, if things aren't going well, as you were saying, Sarah, like reaching out and having a lactation consultant or seeking out chiropractic care or one of those sources can 
make your experience so much better and actually help you really be able to stick with it. And another thing that I know a lot of moms reach to is the, um, the nipple shield, you know, like the, to the shield that, you know, protects your, your body, but then, you know, makes it easier for the baby to drink. And I get it. Like, yes, those are helpful, especially in certain situations, but something that really blew me away. And again, just going back to natural is always best is if you have to use the shield, try to, to wean back off the shield as soon as you can, because there's actually been studies that have shown like when your baby latches onto your breast, there's receptors on your breast that um, basically sense the saliva of your baby and your body actually senses like, what is this baby lacking? And they've shown that literally the next, uh, the next milk supply that comes in is actually higher in those things. Like how, how amazing is the body, you know? So try to, try to do it. It's so worth it. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing. I I remember seeing a Facebook post of a mom who was like tandem nursing. So she was nursing her newborn and her two-year-old and she would then pump because she'd go to work and the, the side that she nursed her newborn on um, compared to the side that she was nursing her toddler on, the, the milk color was completely different. And it was so interesting to me. I, I had that aha moment, like, wow, like how amazing is the body to know exactly what this other little being needs? And these are two totally different kiddos, you know, and they had totally different needs. And I just remember it was a big aha moment for me, you know, even with all the studies we've had and, you know, going through to get our degrees, really just that like actual experience with the human body is really what has shifted me philosophically to really just honor, you know, what the body can do. It's amazing. So a couple of tips when it comes to breastfeeding, And I know, Natalie, you touched on this earlier, but I want to make sure we reiterate it. My suggestion with a low milk supply, it's very easy to go to the internet and start looking for herbs and supplements and oats and different nutritional things. And I did it all because I had a low supply with my first, but really it was just me not understanding how to feed him on demand. I had the voice in my head of a doctor because we wound up in the hospital saying, use this log and feed every two hours versus no, sometimes a baby needs to feed every 15 minutes and they just need to fall asleep on your boob and stay there for the next two hours and understanding that that's okay. And there is no do this for this baby. It's do what this baby needs. But really the biggest thing with low supply I have found clinically is hydration. So I tell moms 12 to 20 ounces every time you nurse. And that's just a standard guideline. And I found if you just do that, really supply can pick back up. There are herbs like uh, fenugreek, fennel, alfalfa, milk thistle. There's mother's milk tea. There's all sorts of nursing cookies or supply cookies that you can make at home. But really, really, I think hydration is big with this. I also think your success rate of breastfeeding is so much higher when you are just spending a lot of time skin to skin with your baby and you throw any idea of a schedule or to-do list out of your head and you just are responsive to your baby's needs. I used to carry this like wristband on my wrist where I would flip it one side to the other side, depending on which side I nursed on. And, and it had like this little thing with the time on it. And for baby two, it was like, this was, I, why, why did I complicate this so much? Just like nurse, feel which boob is bigger. Oh, that must've been, not been the one I nursed on last time, better nurse on that one this time. And you really can just respond to your baby's needs and trust that your body will produce 
I know that some moms really try hard with this. And I've had some friends and colleagues that understand all the things that we do. And they, for whatever reason, have low supply and are just have not been able to get it to work. There are alternatives within your community. I would almost guarantee you can find a mother who would be willing to donate her breast milk to you. In my opinion, that's the next best option. If you, for whatever reason, cannot nurse on your own to get, to get milk donated to you from someone in your community, there are some clean formulas, which we can talk about in future episodes. But I really think when you go into this with a success mindset, you go into it with, I'm going to persevere. We are going to figure this out. And then you don't hide and do it alone. You talk to people about what are the issues you're facing? What are you feeling? What are your concerns? You seek community. That's really when we have the best response, not just in breastfeeding, but in my opinion, in motherhood in general. So thank you so much for joining us today. We will see you guys soon. Thanks for joining us today on the MomDocs podcast. If you enjoyed listening to the show, the greatest compliment you can give is to share this with others and leave us a review on iTunes. By subscribing to our podcast, you'll never miss an episode. We'll see you next time.